0: Thanks to
1: you at home for joining me this hour. I want to start tonight with what I think is an incredibly good point made yesterday by a Republican congressman, a member of the Freedom Caucus, no less. Here is what Texas conservative Chip Roy had to say to his colleagues.
2: One thing. I want my Republican colleagues to give me one thing, one, that I can go campaign on and say we did. One. Anybody sitting in the complex, if you want to come down to the floor and come explain to me one material, meaningful, significant thing the Republican majority has done besides, well, I guess it's not as bad as the Democrats.
1: Congressman Roy is correct on two fronts here. First off, the Republican-controlled House of Representatives has done next to nothing of substance this year. Second, the Republican-controlled House is not as bad as the Democrats. It's much, much worse. This is on track to being the least productive Congress since the Great Depression. That is how few actual laws have been passed. They can't even pass the basic spending bills to keep the government running. It is just an endless cycle of crisis and can-kicking down the road. So when the history books are written about this Congress, what will it be remembered for? Will it be remembered for the 15 votes it took for Republicans to elect Kevin McCarthy Speaker of the House or how just 10 months later he became the first House Speaker in American history to be ousted from that role, only to be replaced by someone that most people, including Congress people, had to Google Congressman Mike Johnson? Or will it be remembered for the fact that disgruntled former Speaker Kevin McCarthy is now allegedly body checking his Republican frenemies in the hallways? Or maybe this Republican Congress will be remembered for the wild hearings they have held to air baseless conspiracy theories. Here is Louisiana Congressman Clay Higgins yesterday pushing the idea that the FBI was behind the January 6th insurrection.
2: If you are asking whether the violence at the Capitol on January 6 was part of some operation orchestrated by FBI sources and or agents, the answer is emphatically no. You're saying not. no? No. You're saying not no? Not okay. violence orchestrated
3: Let's by FBI violence. sources or agents. Are you familiar with, with, you know what a ghost vehicle is? These buses are nefarious in nature and were filled with FBI informants dressed as Trump supporters ghost buses.
1: Yes, there are plenty of options here for the history books. But there is one story, one member of Congress, really, that perhaps best reveals the way in which this Congress, this Republican-led Congress, is less about legislation, less about work, less about actual governments, governance, and really, quite simply, just about personal gain. And that is the story of New York Congressman George Santos. Mr. Santos rose to fame in Congress as a serial fabulist. He lied about his mother dying from cancer she got in one of the Twin Towers on September 11th, and about his grandparents fleeing the Holocaust, and about losing employees in the Pulse nightclub shooting, and about being mugged on his way to deliver his rent— and about his roommate's Burberry scarf that he wore unironically to a Stop the Steal rally, and about being a star volleyball player at a college he didn't actually even attend, and about being a producer of the Broadway musical Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, and about the $3,000 he stole from a veteran's dying dog's GoFundMe page. George Santos lied about all of that. And then there were the myriad financial crimes that Santos was allegedly involved in, everything from Ponzi schemes to credit card skimming. And yet, despite all of that, his Republican colleagues refused to show Mr. Santos the door. But what happened today might finally change that. Today, the House Ethics Committee released its report on Santos's alleged election-related financial crimes. And there are allegedly a lot of them. The House Ethics Committee alleges that Santos got his hands on campaign cash through a variety of schemes. He allegedly pretended to loan money to his campaign so he could be reimbursed and created shell companies that his campaign would then pay for expenditures like ads that didn't actually exist. He also allegedly got people to donate directly to those shell companies, believing their donations would go towards helping Santos's campaign. And what the House Ethics Committee alleges that money actually went towards is incredible. $6,000 worth of purchases at Ferragamo. $4,000 worth of purchases from Hermes. More than $2,000 spent at resorts in Atlantic City. More than $3,000 spent in a weekend in the Hamptons. An $800 cash withdrawal from an ATM at a casino. $1,000 cash taken from an ATM near Santos' apartment. Purchases on the adult entertainment website OnlyFans. And multiple more than $1,000 charges on the campaign debit card for Botox. Nice work if you can get it. Now, the Republican chairman of the House Ethics Committee says he will file a motion tomorrow to expel Mr. Santos from the House. It is unclear if that motion will pass. Santos himself has not resigned, but he has said he will not seek re-election. He has already been charged by the Eastern District of New York with allegations including wire fraud, falsifying FEC records, and aggravated identity theft, but he has pleaded not guilty to all of those charges. But Santos's campaign treasurer pleaded guilty last month for her role in one of his alleged financial schemes, and just 2 days ago, one of Santos's former fundraising aides pleaded guilty to a federal wire fraud charge in another alleged scheme of Santos's. But as of this hour, George Santos maintains he is innocent, and he remains very much a member of the House Republican Conference. Joining me now is the ranking member on the House Ethics Committee, which wrote today's report, Pennsylvania Democratic Congresswoman Susan Wild. Congresswoman Wild, thanks for being here. I'm I'm interested to know how complicated it was to untangle these alleged financial crimes, or was it fairly out in the open?
4: Well, thank you, Alex, for having me. And let me just say, the first thing I have to do is give a huge shout out to an incredible staff Of lawyers and other staffers on the ethics committee who have spent months going through and unraveling, as you say, the evidence in this case. It is truly a phenomenal amount of work and effort that went into this report, um, and I'm glad that it has now been made public.
1: And I encourage everybody to read the report, which is available on the internet. I, I would love it if you could sort of characterize your thoughts about the scope of this fraud i mean it is to the to the layperson a staggering amount of deception but i wonder how you would characterize it
4: well not just to a layperson alex it's it's a staggering amount of deception to anybody and you know at the beginning you mentioned a, you went through a whole lot of his lies that really don't bear on his um performance as a congressman or anything else. But there is also, and you mentioned some of them, a litany of deceptions that were carried out, um, actual crimes involving de- um, get, sending money to himself through shell companies and getting people to donate to these companies and lying on his campaign finance reports um, and all kinds of things that really, really make him unfit for office. And I think it is our responsibility on the Ethics Committee to—first of all, I'm a big believer in good government. I believe that—and it makes me sad— that Americans generally have a poor impression of Congress. And let me tell you, people like George Santos don't help that situation. So I'm really proud to be on the Ethics Committee, which, by the way, is a completely bipartisan committee, uh, the equal number of Democrats and Republicans. Every single thing we did in connection with the Santos investigation and the investigative subcommittee and eventually um, voting it out of committee so that it would be published was a unanimous vote of Democrats and Republicans. Republicans. That says a lot, because that doesn't happen a whole lot in Congress. But I think that It is our responsibility not only to the people of New York 3, his district, but to the rest of the country to make sure that people like this are not serving in Congress and not serving in any kind of position of public trust, and that when they somehow manage to make it through a campaign and get elected, that they are ferreted out and eventually expelled. And that, I think, is what you are going to see happen after Thanksgiving.
1: Do you think George Santos is going to be in Congress by next Monday?
4: By next Monday, yes, because the, a privileged resolution such as the one that the ethics chairman Michael Guest, in a Republican, intends to file, um, reco- it has to be uh, voted on within two legislative days. Congress will not be back in session until the Tuesday after um, Thanksgiving. So, I believe—well, tomorrow there's a pro forma session, and my understanding is that Mr. Guest will be introducing that resolution tomorrow, which means, by my calculations, that it will have to be voted on by Wednesday following Thanksgiving. Do I expect it to pass? I do. A number. I've spoken to a number of people who have voted no on prior motions to expel or to censure Mr. Um, Santos. All of them are now a yes vote. Well, and we I should add, member, members. Yeah, let me just add. Members of the ethics committee often vote present on such things because we want to give the appearance of complete um, of complete propriety and that we are not in any way, um, you know, biased against somebody who comes before us. But the work of the ethics committee is now done. There is nothing more to come before us. And my understanding is that all of the members of the ethics committee will be voting yes on expulsion.
1: Congresswoman Susan Wilde, ranking member of the House Ethics Committee, thank you so much for your time and the latest on all of this. Thank you. I want to bring into our conversation here Melissa Murray, professor of law at NYU and an MSNBC legal analyst. Melissa, thank you for uh, joining me as we pour through what is just a litany of alleged malfeasance, if not outright crimes, and um, from a legal perspective, when you hear about this, I mean, there's a reason we went through all the insane things George Santos lied about and also the substantive potential right. crimes. They seem to—it's it, it, a character—it's um, an indication of his character, the, the sort of fabulism that would lead a person to allegedly do things that are described in the House ethics report. But from a legal perspective, what are the implications of, of this that is all being referred to the
5: DOJ? So as you say, the Venn diagram here is very strong. Um, you know, a lot of the information that was discussed in this very scathing ethics committee report could translate very easily into federal crimes. There's already an indictment that's pending against George Santos, um, first for 13 counts. Then there was an additional 10 counts and a superseding indictment. It's very likely that there could be yet another superseding indictment. It's very likely that there could be questions that are raised about campaign finance laws that have been violated. The federal election committee could be involved. Like So this goes beyond simply Censuring or disciplining or even expelling a member of Congress, like there is real legal liability exposure here. I, I am I am stunned
1: by the degree to which you know we hear the term campaign finance violations with some regularity in American life. This is a different order of magnitude entirely. And the fact that Santos thought not only tried but really got away with it as up until this point, it seems. I mean, what does that tell you about our campaign finance system in America?
5: Well, I mean, we've already seen that the campaign finance system has broken. We've seen this since Citizens United, the flood of dark money into our elections. I mean, this is sort of more of the same, like a little more granular using campaign finance funds in order to fund your own especially lavish lifestyle. All of that is a problem. But beyond campaign finance, we should also talk about the way in which we have for years heard the Republican Party talk about rampant voter fraud and electoral fraud. And here we have an example of actual fraud on voters. George Santos won his seat, flipped his seat on these claims that were later with very little sleuthing were determined to be false. That's fraud on the voters. I mean, that's actual election fraud. And now we found out that not only did he lie to the voters in order to gain his seat, he's been actually funding his lifestyle. The Ethics Committee has found this, and it's very likely that some of this will make its way into a court of law as well. So, I mean, that to me is the most damning. If you want to look for electoral fraud, voter fraud, maybe Here it is. Yeah, exactly. Look
1: no further than one of the votes that are keeping Republicans in power. I do have to ask in the context of the ethics concerns we have had lately at the highest echelons of American government, right? We're talking about Clarence Thomas and his $250,000 RV loan, the payment of private school for uh, <clears throat> an individual he had in his care, the purchase of his mother's home by wealthy patrons. Here you have George Santos running a grift, but whereby pe- people are deluded and deceived into believing the money they're sending is for his campaign when it's really to buy Farragamo shoes and get him Botox. I mean, how critical is it that, I mean, Let me rephrase that. How how much can expelling George Santos give Americans confidence that the system is not broken, is not rigged, that is not really a mechanism for grift?
5: So I think George Santos is only a drop in the bucket here and expelling George Santos from Congress, even finding and convict or finding him guilty or convicting him of any of these crimes. That's just a drop in the bucket. It's not going to restore American confidence in Congress. Congress, among all of the political branches, has the lowest ratings among Americans, although the Supreme Court, not a political branch, um, but one that has increasingly seen its stature with the American public fall over recent years for all of the reasons that you suggest. Like, Americans are at the point, I think, where they are a little skeptical of government. And I think Representative Wild's statements we're really at. She believes in good governance. I think Americans want to believe in good governance as well. This undermines any feeling that government is working for the people. Instead, it seems it's working for some of the people, and some of those people may actually serve in Congress.
1: And she was really drilling down on the notion that this was a bipartisan committee, yes. a bipartisan decision, and it feels imperative that the decision to expel Santos be bipartisan, precisely because the Supreme Court, which yeah. you point out, which I am, has been, have been concerned about, Seems to, the, the desire to sort of have the court hold itself to a high, rigorous standard seems to be a partisan decision
5: in this day and age. Oh, yeah. Again, there are lots of partisan concerns here. Um, and, and those questions, I think, loom large. I also think they loom large over the question of whether or not to expel George Santos. I mean, yes, this feels good in the moment. Like, he's clearly someone who does not deserve to be in Congress if these allegations are to be believed. But if we are in the business of expelling individuals from Congress, it could easily be turned about to people with whom we don't agree, who make statements with whom about which we don't agree. And so, again, I think those who have urged caution in proceeding down the expulsion route, I I think that's fair and worth thinking about. But the point of the matter is this is someone who should not have been in Congress from jump, who lied to get there. And now we're just seeing the sweater that he has woven of his very expensive Ferragano yarn simply unravel before our eyes.
1: I would call it like a giant onesie, like what's bigger (laughs) than a sweater, (laughs) a a, a blanket, a quilt, a snuggie of lies. A A throw. Exactly. Um, Melissa Murray, thank you as always, my friend. It's good to see you. Good to see you. Much more ahead tonight, including Donald Trump's unrelenting attempts to buy more time before he has to go to trial and the judge who may be willing to help him. But first, what a second Trump administration could mean for immigrants in this country and what might be done about it. I will talk with President Biden's principal deputy campaign manager about all that coming up next.
0: The Living Room is where you make life's most beautiful memories.
1: In 2025, a reelected president, Donald Trump, would round up undocumented people already in the United States on a vast scale and detain them in sprawling camps while they wait to be expelled. He would reassign federal agents, local police officers and National Guard soldiers to scour the country for unauthorized immigrants and deport people by the millions every year. That is the vision outlined by Trump advisors, including Stephen Miller, to The New York Times last weekend. But we might not have to wait until 2025 to see at least part of that plan in action. As we speak, Texas is on the verge of testing out one part of the Trump 2025 immigration plan. On Tuesday, in a challenge to the federal government, Texas lawmakers passed a bill that would allow local police officers, without training, to arrest undocumented migrants. The state would deputize officers hundreds of miles away from the border to make these arrests. The bill would also allow local judges to deport those migrants without due process. Critics say the bill could lead to racial profiling and the wrongful arrests of U.S. citizens, but it is now awaiting the signature of Texas Governor Greg Abbott. And this weekend, Governor Abbott will be at the border with Donald Trump, the man who wants to implement these policies nationwide. Joining me now is Quentin Folks, principal deputy campaign manager for President Biden's reelection campaign. Quentin, thank you for being here tonight. Uh, I know the Biden campaign has thoughts on some of the Trump policies that have been alluded to. I'll read a quote from one of the Biden campaign press releases today. Building massive detention camps by defunding our military to imprison people living in America is not only un-American, it will actively make us less safe. Donald Trump isn't just echoing the words of Hitler and Mussolini by saying he will root out vermin from within. He's planning real action to follow in their footsteps. Does the Biden campaign feel that Donald Trump is on the level of Hitler and Mussolini?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Look, Alex, thank you for having me on the show. When someone shows you who they are, believe them. Uh, we've had four years to see Donald Trump drive our country to the brink of destruction uh, on foreign policy, domestic policy. And now his campaign is clearly outlining what he would do um, if he were to regain power in 2025. You know, he's talking about ending birthright citizenships, mass detention centers by using the military to round up American citizens in some cases, you know, putting children in cages. Um, you know, this is not who we are. Uh, and so, absolutely, Donald Trump is, has proven that he's on the level of Hitler and Mussolini by his actions. And again, his campaign is now doubling down, saying that he would do the same things over again uh, if he were reelected president of the United States. Um, and so, you know, the proof is in the pudding here. Um, and we Americans need to believe Donald Trump when he says he would do these things, because unfortunately, he's already been given an opportunity to do them before. And we have to do everything in our power to make sure that he does not get back in the White House to try to do it again.
1: How central is this message on immigration going to be to President Biden's reelection campaign? And and how concerned are you about some of the polls that show some waning support for the president among uh, the Latino population in the United States?
3: Look, at the end of the day, um, elections are a choice. Um, Our campaign has been routinely pushing back um, on this narrative around polling, showing that at the end of the day, when there's a choice, American voters are turning out to vote for the Democratic agenda under President Biden's leadership. Uh, We've seen it in the 2022 midterms. We saw it, you know, a week and a day ago uh, on Tuesday or a week and two days ago on Tuesday when Americans voted, uh, winning races in Kentucky, making—closing the gap uh, in terms of Republicans and Democrats in states like Mississippi and Ohio legalizing abortion. Um, And so, again— Our focus is on making sure we're doing everything we can right now to build a foundation to where we're gonna be able to have the most successful campaign heading into 2024. And when it comes to this immigration message, again, this election is a choice. And Donald Trump is showing that he is planning to put in place a divisive, hateful, and harmful agenda for America by calling for a Muslim ban, saying he wants to round people up. These are human beings that we're talking about. This is not leadership. This is not the way you govern. This is the ego of one person who is completely out of touch who is completely extreme, who is searching for relevance again, and our campaign is going to be focused every single day on making sure we don 't let him do that
1: i gotta, I, I want to ask about the sort of the the narrative, the messaging, the pushing back um, there 's a story that we were covering yesterday about Univision and how the channel, the network, the most widely watched Spanish language channel in the United States is increasingly turning its favor towards Donald Trump. It reportedly canceled Biden ads that were supposed to be running during its interview with Donald Trump. It canceled uh, an interview with a Biden spokesperson that was supposed to run after this interview with Donald Trump. Uh, When it comes to getting the Biden message out in this critical year ahead, are you concerned by the actions of a place like Univision?
3: Look, you know, Univision is is a platform that reaches a, a, a lot of voters. Um, you know, who care deeply about the issues that we want to put in front of them. Um, and so we're going to continue to have conversations and make sure uh, that we can resolve any issues that we have with them. That's not something that, you know, I want to litigate out uh, in the press. Uh, and, you know, so we're going to handle that uh, in the manner that it needs to be handled. When it comes to reaching voters, we're living in a very fractured media environment. It's a different media environment that existed in 2020. It's a different media environment that existed in 2022. Um, and it's going to be ever-changing as we head into 2024. And so our campaign right now from the start has been very diligent about investing uh, in testing across the states uh, that we know we need to win in 2024 in order to get Joe Biden and Kamala Harris reelected. And so finding the best messages, finding where we can reach the most voters so that when we get into next year, we're able to maximize our effectiveness at reaching voters. Um, And this is something, by the way, that the Republican Party, no other party right now, uh, is doing and working on. And this is not something that you're just going to be able to parachute or balloon into 2024 um, and think that you're going to reach voters in the media environment. But our campaign is going to keep our head down, continue to do the work to make sure that. We're using every platform and media uh, outlet available uh, to reach voters where they are and deliver the message that Joe Biden is working uh, on an agenda to lower costs for American families, uh, to keep America safe and stark contrast with the Republican Party, who is hell-bent on continuing to rip away a woman's right to choose, um, you know, and giving tax breaks to Big Pharma and the wealthiest among us. Uh, and so that's where our focus is. And that's how we're going to continue to proceed into next year.
1: And I know you, you, you folks have been reaching out, especially to communities of color, specifically black voters in this country, Latino voters in this country. That's part of an early initiative that we've heard reporting on. I got to ask about the president's support among black voters. Um, 22% of black voters, this is according to polling that I know, and we're not supposed to be relying too much on it, but it is a snapshot of the American public at this moment in time. 22% of black voters in six swing states choose Trump over Biden. Um, Kamala Harris performs better than Joe Biden in a head-to-head matchup against Trump, due in large part to her support in among voters who are either non-white or under 30. Can you talk about that? Why is that? And what is Kamala Harris's role in the president's reelection strategy?
3: look, this is the Biden-Harris re-election campaign. Uh, they ran together as a ticket um, and that's how we're running this time around. So we're not going to get caught up um, in any sort of traps to try to separate the president and the vice president. That's not happening. The agenda that has been uh, ran and successfully accomplished for the American people and all the things that the president has done, the vice president has been by his side and we're going to message those. Um, and that includes you know, creating nearly 14 million jobs, uh, $7 billion to HBCUs, 800,000 manufacturing jobs, capping the cost of insulin at 30 dollars a month, putting more black women in the federal judiciary than any other administration, uh, all other administrations combined. Um, And so that's where our focus is. You know, when it comes to black voters, I've routinely said that black voters are not monolithic. Um, This is not an audience that we take for granted whatsoever. It's also not an audience that we believe we're just going to be able to parachute in their communities um, next year around September and October and just say, if you turn out to vote, um, that you're going to vote for us. We know we have to earn the support of this community, and we're keeping our head down and doing that um, every single day which is why we've come in and started treating both black voters, Latino voters, AAPI voters as persuadable targets that we know we need to have sustained conversations with over the course of the next year to make sure that they turn out to vote and that they turn out to vote for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Um, And again, this election is going to be a choice. Uh, And when the choice is put in front of these voters, we've seen time and time again, in spite of any polling that's come out, that they vote Democratic for an agenda that's being presided over by Joe Biden and Kamala Harris.
1: Not taking any votes for granted, not parachuting in. Quentin Folks from the Biden campaign. Pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your time tonight, sir.
3: Thank you, Alex. I appreciate it.
1: When we come back, a series of decisions by the federal judge overseeing Donald Trump's classified documents case has legal experts wondering what is going on here. Plus, a federal jury convicts the hammer wielding man who attacked former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband against a backdrop of political violence unfolding across this country. That is next.
2: Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call.
1: A federal jury in San Francisco has convicted the man who brutally attacked former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul, with a hammer last year, a violent crime that was caught on tape and that could put him in prison for life. Today, the jury found David DePapp guilty on two counts attempted kidnapping of a federal official, that would be Speaker Pelosi herself, and assault on the immediate family member of a federal official. The federal official piece of this is important because it was central to DePap's defense. He never disputed that he committed the assault. The defense team's argument was that DePap should not have been subject to federal criminal charges that he didn't do, that he didn't do what he did because of Nancy Pelosi's actual job as a federal official. Instead, the defense argued DePap did this because of a conspiratorial belief that Nancy Pelosi was part of a larger plot to, quote, manipulate the country, to spread lies, and to steal votes from Donald Trump. DePap himself took the stand this week and spoke for more than an hour, recounting how his political leanings went from leftist to right-wing after he read a comment on a YouTube video about former President Donald Trump. DePap testified that his plan was to get Pelosi and other people he considered targets, including Tom Hanks, Mike Pence, and Governor Gavin Newsom, to admit to their corruption— and eventually to get President Biden to pardon them all. Now, David DePape may represent the extreme, paranoid end of the spectrum here, but he is part of a broader trend towards violence among our American citizenry and among our American leaders. Earlier this week in Georgia, an Alabama man appeared in federal court to be arraigned on charges of allegedly making threats against Fulton County D.A. Fonnie Willis and the Fulton County Sheriff for their roles in the prosecution of former President Trump. The man pleaded not guilty. Also this week, also in Georgia, another man made his first appearance in federal court on charges of allegedly making threatening calls to the office of pro-Trump conservative firebrand Marjorie Taylor Greene. He allegedly said he wanted to shoot Greene in the bleeping head and threatened her family. On Tuesday, the building housing the office of the Kansas Secretary of State was evacuated because of a letter containing a suspicious substance. That followed a number of similar incidents over the past few weeks in which letters containing white powder, including in some cases fentanyl, were sent to election offices in five states, Georgia, Nevada, California, Oregon and Washington. At least one of those letters reportedly came with the message, end elections now. And all of this stuff is just this week's news. A red flag signaling that a democracy is in trouble is when violence begins encroaching on the political space. And boy, that is a lot of red flags. Coming up, one of Trump's four criminal trials appears destined to be delayed until after the 2024 election. We're gonna tell you which one and why next. But first, a sneak preview of Periodical, a brand new MSNBC film which is premiering this Sunday at 10 p.m. Eastern.
0: Yeah. When I was growing up, we did not speak about
5: it. The word hysteria comes from the word hystera, which is Greek for uterus. Basically, anything that happened with your period made you crazy. Today,
1: Judge Eileen Cannon significantly raised the chances that Donald Trump's trial in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case will be delayed. And she did it with a one paragraph order. There it is. All 10 lines of it. Now, Special Counsel Jack Smith had requested that Judge Cannon set a deadline for Trump's team to tell prosecutors what classified information they plan to use in this trial. And they want that deadline to come fairly soon in order to keep the case on track for trial in May. But in this order, this 10-line order, Judge Cannon says that she will not set that crucial deadline until next March. And that is raising red flags among legal experts. It means a May 20th trial start date is looking less and less likely, which could give Trump the delay he has been desperately seeking since the very start of this case. Remember, it was not even a week ago when Judge Cannon said she was keeping the May trial date for now, but also leaving her options open to changing that date in the future. And waiting until March to make her final decision here could impact at least one other Trump criminal case— that is still in search of a court date. Joining me now is Barb McQuaid, MSNBC legal analyst and a former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. Barb, thank you for being here. Walk me through the implications of waiting until March to make some of these very important decisions.
6: Yeah, you know, there's nothing illegal about this order, but I think the reason that so many people are concerned about it is, as a practical matter, it really does seem inevitable that this will delay the trial date. Um, the the issue here is the SEPA uh, hearing. SEPA stands for Classified Information Procedures Act, and it requires the defense to notify the government— which, if any, classified documents it will use at trial. That's so the government can figure out its strategy, can get clearance from the intelligence community, and other things. And normally, 30 days is plenty of time to do that. In fact, counting backwards from a May trial date, 30 days would only be April. So no problem, right? But the problem was identified in Jack Smith's pleading, which said over 5,000 documents that are classified have already been produced To the Trump team. And so, realistically, to get the notice of what's being used only 30 days out would just not be enough time to do all the things they need to do to get ready for trial. There have to be motions and responses and a hearing uh, and then a strategy about that. So what they asked for is to set that date in December so that there'd be plenty of time to work through that. I think by saying we're not even going to set the date until March, the judge really is sort of tacitly confirming that there's just no way this case is going to go to trial in May.
1: Is she also tacitly confirming her potential allegiance to Donald Trump here? I mean, how do you read the tea leaves on this? Is indicative of a judge whose sympathies are are really in line with those of Donald Trump's?
6: I don't know. It's difficult to, you know, assess uh, a motive to somebody. It does uh, seem to cause you to scratch your head, though, a little bit. You know, most judges want to keep their dockets in order and will do anything to kind of push the parties and keep things moving. It's usually the parties who seek delay because they're just so busy and the judge who tries to keep things moving. And so here, this delay, it, it's hard to figure out what the logic of it is. and Perhaps that is one theory behind it. But it does seem that it is Building in an ability to delay the trial. Now, it, j- delaying the trial past May doesn't mean you have to delay the trial past November, which is s- certainly what Donald Trump will want. Uh, it could be a trial in the summer or the fall, but uh, hard to see how that trial takes place in May without addressing these SEPA issues until March.
1: But, it, Barb, does, does Trump not actually have a case to be made that it's going to be hard to be in a courtroom? In the fall of a presidential election year. I mean, does, is there not some credibility to that argument?
6: Yes. And I, you know, I think one thing that you often see in criminal cases is incremental delay in a trial date. And maybe that's Trump's strategy here. And maybe Judge Cannon is going along with that. You know, the first delay is till June and then there's a delay till September. And then at some point he says, it's too close to the election. It would, you know, taint my ability to campaign effectively. So I imagine we may see all of that play out as
1: that election date approaches. In the meantime, May is on hold. And Fonny Willis still needs a date for her Georgia election interference case. It would be nice maybe if someone could free up some weeks for her. Barbara McQuaid, always good to talk with you. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Alex. Coming up, Israeli troops spent a second day searching the Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza for evidence of a Hamas headquarters. What they found and did not find is next. Tonight, airstrikes continue throughout the Gaza Strip, which has now lost all cell phone and Internet connectivity under complete blackout due to a lack of fuel. It comes as Israeli troops spent a second day searching Gaza's main al-Shifa hospital. Despite claims by the U.S. and Israeli governments, the search thus far has failed to produce evidence of a Hamas command headquarters operating on hospital grounds. Today, NBC's Raf Sanchez filed this
3: report. This, Israel says, is the proof it's been searching for. Releasing video today of what it claims is a Hamas tunnel shaft on the grounds of Al-Shifa, Gaza's largest hospital. NBC News cannot independently verify that claim, but we can confirm this opening is located near the hospital.
7: There is a, an AK-47.
3: Both Israel and the U.S. say Hamas operates a command center below Al-Shifa. But the raid at first turned up only sparse signs of militants. Israel says there'll be more evidence to come.
1: Joining me now is someone who knows that hospital well. Throughout the years, MSNBC's Eamon Mohedin has reported extensively on Gaza, including from inside Al-Shifa Hospital during previous conflicts. Eamon, you're always a wealth of information for this, and I am so grateful for your perspective. Thank you for When you hear about the reporting from Al Shifa Hospital, what is your what's your sort of assessment about what's going on here?
7: Well, the first thing I think of is back in 2008 when I was based in the Gaza Strip and I would go to the Shifa Hospital to report frequently on all kinds of stories. Um, these allegations that the Israelis have been making have been making literally for 15 years. You can go back to 2008 and see Israeli officials making the same statements that al-Shifa hospital was being used by Hamas as a command and control center. Sometimes they would call it the headquarters. They would say that's where the prime minister at the time would be hiding. And all I could tell you is based on my reporting there for years, I've been there hundreds of times, walked around all of the complex of al-Shifa hospital, never once uh, had anyone interfere with our reporting, telling us you can't go here, you can't access that. That's one. Two, I think it's important for viewers to understand that a lot of the doctors who work at Al Shifa Hospital um, are foreign doctors, meaning they're volunteer doctors. Yeah. They come from the U.K., they come from Sweden. Some have come from the United States and many of those doctors as well. Um, we hear the, the language sometimes that the doctors and the hospitals are run and controlled by Hamas. But the truth is, these doctors are Americans, Europeans, um, certainly no allegiance to Hamas whatsoever. And they have spoken openly about what they have seen and how they were never denied any access to anywhere in the hospital grounds for them to be able to go and see for themselves. That's not to say it's not true. I'm just saying it's been 15 years of these allegations, hundreds of reporters who have passed through those hallways, hundreds of doctors, including local and foreign doctors, who have come through there and never substantiated by anybody outside of uh, the Israelis and now the Americans. The
1: the president was asked point blank about the intelligence he had that 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 the Al-Shifa hospital was a Hamas headquarters. He he said clearly in a press conference yesterday, Hamas does have headquarters weapons material below this hospital. And I suspect others. The U.S. is very out front on this. Yeah. And it feels like a lot hangs on the IDF's ability to show that this, in fact, was a Hamas headquarters. This feels like an incredibly weighted moment for all of this. And I wonder what you make of Biden's strategy thus far.
7: So, again, I would say as a journalist— where is the evidence? Where is the intelligence? Um, I'm old enough to have remembered 2003 and the whole weapons of mass destruction uh, debacle in Iraq. So I, I err on the side of caution when it comes to governments and intelligence officials saying, here's the proof and we're going to war for this proof. Again, it's not to say that it's not true. It's just simply to say we would need to see what that evidence is. And Israel would have to make a compelling case. And they have now been in control of El Shifa Hospital for the better part of 48 Hours going on to 72 hours tomorrow. And what we have seen so far raises a lot of questions as to how they have described it. So, uh, again, they described it as a Hamas headquarters or command and control. The language has shifted a little bit from command and control to a, as Admiral Kerber said earlier, a not or node, uh, a command and control node, which I'm not sure what that distinction is, yeah. but it just seems like it's a slightly downgraded description of what's inside. And what we're seeing also really raises questions on what Israel itself has described as its intelligence failure on October 7. So there's just a lot of right. questions that I think as journalists, I would be looking at with a more uh, cautious eye before running into the conclusion that the Israelis and the Americans are saying.
1: Well, and it's also coming as the Biden administration tries to kind of calibrate its response more broadly to Israel in, in, as this war progresses. Exactly. Right. I mean, you have John Kirby with our colleague Chris Hayes today saying it's impossible for Israel to totally eliminate Hamas. Um, You know, you have Biden saying at once, you know, full support of Israel, but also saying the only ultimate answer here is a two state solution, which is not something that's Netanyahu's proposed lately. His last own I cabinet checked.
7: ministers are openly against that. Let's just be yep. very clear about that. I mean, they are openly against a two-state solution. They're saying that privately. They're saying that publicly. The prime minister himself, although he has in the past committed to a two-state solution, it is not something that this Israeli government is prepared to talk about anytime soon. Um, we, we've heard this from a lot of Israeli officials that the two state solution is not a feasible option for a variety of reasons, but certainly not going to be one that's going to be on the horizon anytime soon after everything that has happened here.
1: It is a remarkably complicated moment as Gaza is plunged into a humanitarian nightmare of yeah. epic proportions. As you
7: mentioned, it's a complete blackout now. The United Nations passing a Security Council resolution calling for uh, a ceasefire and the release of the hostages. And we are now in unchartered territory, if you can even say that.
1: Yeah. Eamon Mohadeen, host of Amen, of course, here on weeknight, weekend nights on MSNBC. Thank you, as always, my friend.
0: That is our show for this evening. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best.